My secret is that I'm a suicide attempt survivor and at my lowest, I took 32 pills of clonazepam, which is a lethal dose of anxiety medication. Please note that this episode contains topics of suicide. Some people may find it disturbing. Welcome to the Secret Life Podcast. Tell me your secret. I'll tell you mine. Sometimes you have to go through the darkness to reach the light. That's what I did. After 12 years of recovery in sex and love addiction, I finally found my soulmate, myself. Please join me in my novel, Secret Life of a Hollywood Sex and Love Addict, a four-time bestseller on Amazon. It's a brutal, honest, raw, gnarly ride, but hilarious at the same time. Check it out now on Amazon. Welcome to Secret Life Podcast. I'm Brianne Davis-Gant. Today, I'm pulling back the curtains of all kinds of human secrets. Hear about what people are hiding from themselves or others. You know those deep, dark secrets you probably want to take to your grave? Are those lighter, funnier secrets that are just plain embarrassing? Really, the how, what, when, where, why of it all. Today, my guest is Angie. Now, Angie, I have a question for you. Dun, dun, dun. What is your secret? My secret is that I'm a suicide attempt survivor, and at my lowest, I took 32 pills of clonazepam, which is a lethal dose of anxiety medication. Wow. Can I just ask first, when did that happen? That happened in October 2020, so it's been two years now. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, first of all, I'm glad that you didn't succeed. Because I get to talk to you today (laughs) and have this very serious conversation that a lot of people don't want to discuss. So thank you for wanting to come on and talk about it. Thank you. And that's exactly why I want to talk about it. It's not because I like talking about it. It's because I think we can help other people by being open about these things, which is why I love your podcast. And, you know, because we aren't talking about the shitty things that happen to us, but we all go through shitty things. Yeah. And listen, I never attempted suicide, but I definitely was on a track of destroying myself. And I say in my sex and love addiction, I was using people to kill myself, kind of kill my spirit, put myself in dangerous situations. And I even had a moment when I was driving in my car going, I'm in so much pain. I just don't want to live anymore. I don't want to kill myself, but I don't want to live. Yeah. And that's exactly where it was. And it's Mm -hmm. obviously like a long, many years build up to get to that point, but it really is like a lack of self-love because Mm -hmm. I also used to like be involved in like, you know, toxic relationships or like just things that weren't healthy for me. But it's like, it isn't until you learn how to love yourself and respect yourself that you can really pull yourself out of that track. That is a hundred percent. I agree. So let's backtrack. When did this start? Like, when was that downward spiral? What age did you feel that unlovableness of yourself? So you bring up a good point, because if I really wanted to go back, this would all go back to my childhood trauma. So, Mm. and I could talk for an hour about all of this. So I'll just keep things as succinct as possible. But basically, both of my parents were emotionally unavailable. So I grew up with the innate thought that I'm not important and I don't deserve to be loved. So 
that of course attracts like people, places and things that like reinforce that belief. And that was like just the beginning of everything. Can I just ask how your parents were unavailable? Mine, one was a workaholic, one was a narcissist kind of situation. What was it for you? So my dad was an alcoholic. So my parents did not get divorced until I went away to college. So growing up, both of my parents were in yeah, the house. Yeah, me too. We, we probably have similar stories about that too, because they should have got divorced like yes. you know, 20 Long, years before that. Yeah, yeah like 20 years or whatever. Like they should have never been together is how yes. I look at it. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Um, well, it's not funny, but I have never met someone where like their parents like really stuck it out for that long. But um, so my dad, he was physically available, but he was just emotionally totally checked out. So he would work he would come home from work and he would just drink in his recliner until he went to bed. So he was physically there, but he was just very much not present. And then my mom, because of my dad's lack of presence, her concern was she was a workaholic um, because she was the breadwinner in the family and she was a a nurse. So she got paid hourly so she could work more and earn more money. So she would get caught up in that loop. And she was so overtime. Overtime loop. Yes. She was so concerned with our physical needs, which my sister and I did get our physical needs met. I will give my parents credit for that, but we had zero emotional support. I never learned how to like emotional regulate. And then my mom was always angry. So she didn't know how to emotional regulate. So I just had bad emotional um, influences for my parents too. Yeah. And I just talked to, to somebody else about that. They had food and shelter and clothing, but they didn't have that. And I said, yeah, I I don't care if you get your basic needs met. What really matters if you get that emotional needs met, if it's mirrored to you, how to have healthy relationships, communicate, regulate your emotions, all of that. That's actually more important than yes, the food and the shelter, but our basic needs weren't met. Like a basic need should be emotional support is what I'm trying to say. And that's what sets you up for Mm -hmm. the rest of your life. Yeah. A hundred percent. So, yeah. So then I'll just fast forward many, many years. Uh, So obviously like I would get involved in like unhealthy relationships, Mm -hmm. um, even friendships in hindsight, I was like, wow, I was just like really involved with, you know, people who were not good for me. Cause again, I just didn't really know how I deserved to be treated. I had this belief that I didn't deserve to be loved. And then I was in like this eight year, extremely toxic, tumultuous, like on and off, up and down, Mm -hmm. very on and off. Um, And so in in hindsight, I know that that was a trauma bond. And anyone who knows, uh, who has been in that kind of situation, like just knows how hard it is to just walk away because it's like, you know, it's not good for you, but you just can't leave. So he eventually left me, which was obviously devastating. And then shortly thereafter, my dad passed away and oh, so I was like never two, close to my, yes, those have losses, like even time. if you're not close to your dad, it's two losses. Yeah. Well, but I think that made it worse because I had like the guilt, like I should have done more. I could have done more. Um, mm-hmm. So I think like that just compounded my grief. Yeah. So there's two main things. That was kind of the start of my downfall though. Cause I was like in this really heavy, dark grief for a long time. And then I did attempt to pull myself out of it and I was doing a lot better. And part of that was I was living in Chicago, but I really wanted to move to Hawaii. So I'm like, I'm going to move to Hawaii and make Relocate. my life. Yes. 
but you can't move away from your problem. So. You can't move away from yourself <laughs> or your trauma. It yes. follows you. <laughs> so I moved here and like, obviously like the weather's great and everything, but then I had like other issues and it was really hard when I first moved here. Like, so just for instance, from moving from Chicago to Hawaii, that's a huge culture shock. And then I bought a condo here immediately. And that was like an attempt to prove to myself that like I'm committed, I'm all in. Mm -hmm. um, but buying a home is obviously very stressful. A month after I closed on my condo, I had only lived here like a month and a half, maybe two months. Yeah. My condo flooded. Um, there was a like an issue with one of the building pipes and I wasn't home and it like backflowed into my bathroom sink. Oh God. Um, I really struggled with making friends when I first moved here. Cause like in Chicago, I would make friends everywhere I went. Like, so like that makes the entire experience even that more lonely. Um, there's a bunch of little things. My grandma well, here's died. The thing, you moved from everything you knew. So yes. you were already in a dark place and you thought, oh, I relocate and I can start a new life. I can start a new, I can be my own person. I can buy this thing. And it's just like, you isolated yourself in a sense. Yes. And I'm so glad you recognize that because so many people just look at the aspect of moving to Hawaii and they're like, oh, but you live in paradise. What's the big deal? It's like, it's a very isolated place. So if you don't have a community here, it's that much more isolating. Yes, it, I agree. And here's the thing, you can move to the biggest cities in the in the world and you are isolating if you don't. Yeah you know, know anybody or anything and you're already in a trauma state. Yes. I agree. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, so then, you're there yeah. and all this other now, you lost your grandmother. You said, I cut you off. I apologize. Oh, no, that's okay. Yeah, there were a bunch of little things, but then there were also like, I feel significant things. Like I lost my grandma. Mm -hmm. um, I did start to make friends here and I had a really good friend but then he became extremely toxic because he didn't have boundaries. He was involved with his girlfriend was into drugs. And I think he was dabbling in drugs. So he just became toxic for me. So I was at a point where I didn't have a lot of other friends. He was like my best friend. And then it's like, I had to make the conscious decision to like, let him go. So the, like there were hard decisions. Um, again, there are a bunch of little things, but let's just fast forward up to COVID so then Ooh, yes. COVID happens and mm -hmm. I don't even have to explain like the stress and anxiety that came from that. And I know everybody has a different experience from that. But for me, um, in March 2020, when they mm -hmm. instituted the stay at home order, the beaches were closed, the parks were closed, the hikes were closed. And it's like. I everything for us too in LA. Yes. Everything was closed. Yeah. And it's like, I love nature. Like part of my mental health relief is like going to the beach, being outside. And it's like, that was taken away from me. So, but the ocean was still open because the state doesn't have jurisdiction over the ocean. Mm -hmm. So every day I would go on walks by the beach, you know, on the legal sidewalk by the beach <laughs> and I would see people surfing. So I was like, and I had taken surfing lessons the summer before and I was like, oh, if I can just learn to surf, then that's my like legal way to enjoy the outdoors. Yeah. So I texted my surfing instructor from the summer before. I'm just going to call him Ozzy. That is not his real name. Um, that's what I call him in my book, though. So that's why I use that name for him. Okay. Um, so I texted Ozzy and he was down to give me surfing lessons during COVID. So we started surfing together and his wife is from New Zealand. Mm -hmm. So he had, when we first started surfing, he told me that she had moved back to New Zealand because of COVID, because it was safer, because they had closed the borders. 
Um, but as we started surfing, we became friends and he confided in me that the reason she moved back because they were separated and he didn't know when or if she was coming back. Yeah. So then naturally, because surfing is really the only thing to do, we start like spending more time together. We're hanging out on other days that we're not surfing. So then it becomes romantic. And I didn't see anything wrong with that. And mm-hmm. I, I see so much wrong with that. <laughs> <laughs> warning signs, warning signs in my head. All I see, warning signs, warning signs. And I did not see them. And I like fell in love really hard because like he accepted me for who I was. Like this is the first person who was like contradicting my beliefs that I'm not important and I don't deserve to be loved because he right. was actually treating me the way I deserve to be treated. Whereas like other boyfriends or even friends in the past, like did not. Right. So I fell in love really hard with him. And then his, six months into that, his wife came back and that's when he reveals the truth, which is that his wife had her green card and they needed to be married on paper for two more years so that she could get her citizenship. So he proposed a plan to me to be in a relationship with him while he was still married with her. So <laughs> yeah. it's like a soap, a soap drama right now for me there, to watch. And there's so much, the whole story is way more dramatic. The entire story is my book, but long story short, um, I was obviously not interested in that, um, but I didn't have boundaries. So he kept coming around and I did not enforce my boundaries. So we were like in this gray area for like a month. And then there was one day he just like dropped me on my ass. He was like, he basically just told me he couldn't talk to me anymore with like no explanation. And so obviously, and I love like how you set that up because obviously that's devastating on its own, right? Yes. But keep in mind, this is during COVID. So I was not hanging out with a lot of other people in person. Because you isolated with him. Yes. So like he was part of my daily routine. Yeah. So not like outside of COVID, that would have been devastating. But like during COVID, that was devastating. So that was the straw that broke the camel's back. Like I lasted about a week. And then I remember I went surfing one day after work, it was a Friday. And I was just like, I cannot do this. So I have, I had, I don't take it anymore, uh, prescription anxiety medication. Yeah. And I came home from surfing and it was like four o'clock in the afternoon. And this medication is so strong because it's a nervous system suppressant. Like normally I would just take a half pill before I went to bed because that's how strong it was. So I was like in a horrible emotional state. So I'm like, if I, I had a pill that had two, or I had a bottle that had two pills. And then I had just refilled a bottle with 30 pills. So I was like focused on the two pills. I'm like, if I just take both of these, it'll knock me out for like 12 hours. I'll wake up like clear headed and probably feel a lot better. Cause I also wasn't sleeping. So I felt like that was contributing to my mental state. hundred percent. So I just thought if I got a good night's sleep, it would help. So I took the two pills at like 4 p.m. ish. Mm-hmm. And I woke up around 11 p.m. And all I remember is just running straight to the bathroom and throwing up. And it was just like all this like emotional mess was like erupting like a volcano because again, it's like just this buildup of things. And, and it was just unearthing because our childhood traumas are always like just laying under the surface waiting oh, yeah. for something to trigger it. So it was just all of that, like, because I thought he was treating me like, oh, I deserve to be loved. I'm important. And then it ended up, he was just putting on a show. And so I'm like, it's not true. Like I, you know, I don't deserve to be loved. I'm not important. So I just, it was like, I was on autopilot. I just like marched 
to my cabinet with the 30 pills. And I remember I like split them up into two piles because it seemed like a lot to swallow at once. And then I just swallowed pile one by pile, mm. followed by pile two. And I remember I took my pillow and blanket in the shower and I like just lay down in the shower expecting to die. Mm. And, and it was, it was scary because I thought like, maybe like, I don't know, I was like, do I, am I going to have a heart attack? Like what's going to happen before I die? But, um, I just, it's just kind of like falling asleep. Like you don't remember like what happens right before you fall asleep. It just happens. So that's what happened. I just ended up blacking out without anything scary happening. Wow. Okay. And then did you just wake up? Like what? Yeah. So I woke up and I was still like extremely high, but I, my eyes popped open and I'm in the shower and it's daylight. So I think it's Saturday morning. So, but all I can think of is like, oh my God, I took the pills expecting to die and I'm still alive. And I like shot up and I was like so high from the pills that I just like stumbled to my bed and passed out. And I basically blacked out from there. But my friend Kelly had to fill me in. I had texted her, but it was kind of like not really coherent. So she could tell something was wrong. So she came and picked me up and took me to the hospital. So the next thing I remember is waking up in the emergency room and I have like all these like wires strapped to me. And there was a nurse station beside me because I was on suicide watch and I kept like coming in and out of consciousness. And every time I was starving. So every time I woke up, I was like, Hey, can I have some crackers? Cause I, that seemed feasible in a hospital, but every time I woke up, she hadn't brought me crackers. So I'm high and I'm hangry. And I like really don't want to be in the hospital. I just want to be in my own bed. So finally this other nurse walks in and she's like, Hey, how's it going? And I just totally went off on her. I was like, I've asked for crackers like 10 fucking times and you haven't brought me crackers. I just want to fucking go home. So unfortunately she was in charge of deciding what to do with me. Cause you just can't stay in the emergency room all day. So she admitted me to the psych ward overnight, which was so traumatic. Like they just uh-huh. lock you in a room. There's other, they don't lock it, but like you're in this room. Well, There's you can't other, really leave. Not really. So you, you, you kind mean, of I'm are locked, locked in a room. I'm locked in the psych ward. I'm not locked yeah. in the room, but like, it's just like a bare bones room with uh-huh. nothing in it. So it feels j- like jail. It's extremely institutional. Um, But anyway, I had to spend the night in the psych ward, which was so traumatic. Um, So, yeah. So you're laying there in the psych ward. Are you still high from the pills or have you started coming down? That was like the worst experience for me. Mm -hmm. I was so high that I couldn't even function. They had to help me go to the bathroom. Mm -hmm. I could barely walk. Um, I kept I was still blacking in and out. I was in and out of consciousness. They have communal meals because they have to supervise you when you eat. I kept sleeping through the communal meals Mm -hmm. and I finally had to beg. There was a male nurse who was assigned to me. He came to my room to check on me. I was like begging him for food because they wouldn't allow me to eat unsupervised. So he had to bring me the sandwich without a wrapper. But like I was so starving because in my mind, I thought I hadn't eaten for two days. But this is the plot twist. They released me from the psych ward finally And so I thought I woke up on Saturday. So I spent the night in the psych ward. So I thought it was Sunday afternoon. So I'm released from the hospital. I turn on my phone. That's when I find out that it's Monday afternoon. So I was unconscious in my shower for a day and a half. No. Yes. You were out for a day and a half in that shower. Yes. And I was still, even the time in my hospital, I was blacked out like 50% of the time. Wow. 
That is so scary. I know. And the only treatment quote unquote they gave me was an IV in the emergency room. Like they didn't really give me They didn't pump your stomach or anything? Mm Mm-mm. Was it too far gone, they thought, or why? I, I, I have no idea. Um, there were like a lot of things I didn't think the hospital handled very well. Like, so for instance, when they discharged me, mm-hmm. it was during COVID. So that male nurse, when mm-hmm. he came to discharge me, he just like handed me these weird clothes. And I'm like, those aren't my clothes. He's like, I know your real clothes are in plastic bags because of, because of COVID and you can't open the bags until you leave the hospital. So they gave me these weird clothes to leave. And again, I blacked out on my discharge, but all I remember is standing on the curb. I'm barefoot in these weird hospital clothes. I don't have a ride home. Like they just basically dump it. I'm still high. Like I was so high, like I had blacked out and like, I didn't really know what was going on, but it's like, they just dumped me on the curb. So that like added to the trauma of the whole experience. Yeah. yeah abandoned on the curb and still <laughs> yeah. like, because I in already a, have a medical <laughs> induced state, you know? Oh my God. Yeah. I was like, something has to change because I had to, I ordered an Uber to get home. Oh my God. Um, <laughs> oh my God. I want to rescue you poor, like go and pick you up. Oh my God. So you got in an Uber. Okay. Yeah. Oh, and that was actually a funny story too, because like I'm wearing these weird hospital clothes and it was hot. It was like a really hot October day. And they had given me like cargo pants to wear home. So I'm like sweating. So I tell the Uber driver, I'm like, listen, they gave me these weird clothes to wear home. So I'm going to change into my regular clothes in your back seat." And she was like, yeah, I, I don't care. Um, I won't watch. And I'm kind of like, I really don't give a shit who watches. So I'm just like unapologetically changing my clothes in the backseat. I'm sure other cars were watching, but I was so happy to be away from the hospital and like into my own clothes that I was like, I'm changing my clothes right here. Oh my God. That's such a movie. (laughs) That is such a movie. (laughs) I love it. Okay. So you get home. So I get home and yeah, I was like, things need to change because there's not a lot of suicide attempt survivors. And I know this yeah. because I've done a lot of research and there just isn't a lot of research because I have, I still have like PS, PTSD and like other symptoms and there's just not a lot out there. But anyway, um, one of the things I really want to stress to people is that when you attempt suicide and survive, not only do you still have all of the problems that you had up to the point of attempting suicide, Now you have a new host of problems because I obviously had more trauma from the hospital experience. Um, I had really severe physical symptoms. I had huge withdrawal symptoms, like my hands were shaking. So I have like all these, I didn't sleep for like a week. I would sleep like two hours a night. So there were like all these physical symptoms. And as you know, sometimes a lot of times when physically you feel like shit, that Mm. affects your mental health. So that was like compounding my mental health. So I was like, I need to get a handle on my life so that I don't keep going down this negative path. So I hired a personal coach because I've done traditional therapy in the past and it Mm -hmm. wasn't helpful. So it's like, I need to do something that I know is going to work now and not just like have like talk therapy because just talking about my problems does not help me. I a hundred percent agree. That's what I had to do too. And that's why I do it now for others. It's like, it's a different form of therapy, but it's not just sitting and talking. So I love that you did that. Talk us through that a little bit. Yeah. So, I mean, and he was amazing and it's funny because I had met him at this intensive and it was hosted by this group. Normally they have intensives for men and men healing, Mm -hmm. but this was opened to everybody. 
So there were some females there. So I had met his name's Pablo. So I'd met Pablo at this intensive. I knew he was a personal coach, but his niche is coaching men and dating and men and relationships. But what I like about him, he's not like about the pickup artist type bullshit. He's about being authentic, being, you know, true to yourself, being real, allowing yourself to be seen. And I'm like, those are the things I need to work on. Mm -hmm. So, you know, so it doesn't matter if I'm not a man looking to date or improve my relationship. Like it's like, he calls it the inner game. Like it's things that apply to everybody. So I immediately started working with him and like, he quite literally saved my life. Like I still work with him to this day because he's so amazing, but it just like totally helped me. Yeah. It totally helped me change my mindset and my confidence and just most of all, like know my worth. Cause I don't settle anymore. Like I used to, and that's been a game changer for me. Well, that's what I do. I, you know, I do the whole healthy, healthy relationship and sex and love addiction and all that, but really it's about that love underneath and it's having yeah. boundaries, exercising, voicing your voice. You never use setting, you know, what you're not going to go back to looking at what you used to to take in your toxic relationships and not doing that anymore and seeing those red flags. So it's all of that. I love that a a coach helped you because people still think of like a coach is not as good as therapists, but actually sometimes, and a lot of therapists I work with say it's better because it's exercising and putting it out in the real world instead of just sitting and talking. Yes. Because he gives me homework to practice. And I I give homework too. I give exercises. I give it all. Yeah. It really makes a difference. And it helped me in my healing for 13 years. So I, I'm so proud of you Thank because you. you went the extra step. You really did. Yeah. And I think, again, just like having the knowledge of what hadn't worked for me in the past, I was like, I need to do something that works. Oh, and you wrote a book. So you're like yes. a fellow author. Can you tell us what your book is called? It's called Running in Slippers. It's available on Amazon. and. Yeah. So everything I just described, there's way more juicy details to every bit of that story. And it's all in the book. Oh, and what made you want to write the book? So let's talk about that real quick, because I never wanted to write a book. So I always love to hear why other people want to write books about their experience, strength and hope. Yeah. So that's a good question because it ties into everything we just talked about. So I my occupation is I work in finance, but when I was a little girl, I loved to write and I was an avid writer up until I went to college and studied finance. And then like that writer in me became dormant. And then when I lived in Chicago, I took the second city Chicago sketch comedy writing program. And it was so much fun. And it like lit that writing spark in me. But because I didn't have the confidence, I was like, I didn't want to put myself out there and write a book. So I had this internal struggle for years because it's like, I want to write, but I don't want to put myself out there and write a book. So on my very first call with Pablo, it wasn't even our first official call because we had like an introductory call. Intro call, 30 minute intro. (laughs) So he, I don't know what he asked me. He was like, he was like, if you could do, I think it was like, if you could do anything, what would you do? And I still had that book in the back of my head. So I like was telling him all about the book. And he was like, you really lit up when you were talking about that. And I was like, yeah, that's because I, that's what I really want to do. And just to take a step back for a second, when I first got out of the hospital, mm-hmm. one of my friends, Kahea, because my phone was turned off when I was in the hospital and we had plans on that Sunday that I was in the hospital and out of yeah. commission. She was trying to text me and she was like, are you okay? Are you okay? So she was worried about me. So when I got out of the hospital, I called her 
And I told her what happened. And I was like, I can't believe I survived. And her response was, it's not your time. Mm -hmm. And it gave me goosebumps. So like when Pablo was like, you know, you're really passionate about this book. Why aren't you writing it? And I was kind of at the point, like I just survived dying. I was like, I have nothing to lose. So, (laughs) and you, and you, you went towards that. Yeah. And that probably even helped you heal because yeah, it's writing it down and h- trying to help another person helps us. Yes. And it's funny because that was my primary goal to help other people, but it did help myself mm-hmm. too. Because as you know, as an author, you read your own book a gazillion times. And so, like, you're in the feelings like every time you reread it. And that really helped me process through the healing because, again, as you know, like you don't heal by repressing or avoiding, you heal by going through it. So it helped yeah. me to keep reliving it and going through it and healing. Oh my God, I could talk to you forever. I'm so <laughs> proud of you. And I love, I love when people go through this darkness and get to the other side and then to carry the message. So I'm just so honored you wanted to share this story with the listeners today and me. But I do have one more question. If someone out there is suffering, feeling that they're not worthy enough to be on this planet, they are a child of God, universe, whatever, but they can't see it. What would be your advice for them to not go as extreme as you went? Honestly, I would say reach out to a trusted friend. And I say trusted because even now people kind of give me like half-hearted and I know the intention is there, so I'm not minimizing that, but they give me like half-hearted, like, oh, call me if you need to talk. If you're ever like, basically, if you're ever feeling suicidal, just call me for 10 minutes. If you need to talk, you need to talk to someone who's trusted and can just be an empathetic listener, basically. Um, And if you don't have anyone like that in your life, I mean, reach out to me. I think we need to build more of a community of, you know, basically talking about our shit and helping each other because I feel like I was so lonely and isolated in my struggles. But now that I realize there's so many other people, it's like, there were resources available to me. I just didn't know they were there. So that's why now, because again, like I don't like doing podcasts. I don't like doing this, but like I'm trying to get the message out. Like I find like-minded people like you and I'm like, hey, let's connect so we can share stories. Um, So there are resources available. Um, Yeah, and anyone is free to reach out to me. My email is angie at runningandslippers.com. Oh, thank you so (laughs) much, Angie, for coming on and sharing your experience, strength and hope and walking us through it and surviving and now being a voice for recovery in suicide attempts and anything. So I'm just so grateful to know you. Yes. Thank you so much for having me on. I love your podcast and what you're doing for people. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) And if you want to be on the show, please email me at secretlifepodcast at iCloud.com. Until next time. Thanks again for listening to the show. Please subscribe, rate, share, or send me a note at secretlifepodcast.com. And if you like to check out my book, head over to secretlifenovel.com or Amazon to pick up a copy for yourself or someone you love. Thanks again. See you soon.